Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is November 13th, 2022. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense, Canada's Issues in Under an Hour. It is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. And you actually are in BC. Uh, we weren't <laughs> able to get a show last weekend because, uh, well, I'm going to let you explain that one, Lewis, because boy, did we try. <laughs> yeah, so um, I was supposed to be back in BC uh, for the show last week. Um, and I want to apologize to our listeners right off the bat for not having a show last week. Um, unfortunately, as you're going to find out, it was completely unavoidable. And then with the and then with BC uh, taking part in the uh, um, archaic daylight savings time and Saskatchewan not, uh, it made trying to meet up during the week here to do a, the episode pretty much impossible. Um, so I. Uh, I was supposed to be back here in BC for the show last week, but I was in Calgary um, and not in a place where I could do a show. And the reason I was in Calgary was because I was on my way back from Vegas on Saturday and WestJet's computer system crashed and it was down for roughly four hours, um, which meant that from the moment I got to the Vegas airport to the time that we flew out, I was there for nine hours. Um, it was brutal, especially on WestJet's part because WestJet did not send anybody to come and talk to us, to let us know what was going on. Um, we just sat there with no information we uh we went up to the WestJet people they said they had no idea what was going on they had no information they couldn't even get in touch with anyone in calgary at WestJet. um and then five minutes later they all put their jackets on and left and so we were left sitting in the at the gate at the airport with nobody from WestJet there, nobody to tell us what was going on, nobody to tell us how long it was going to be before our flight uh, was there because the app wasn't updating. The Vegas airport's departure board wasn't updating. In fact, an hour before we left the Vegas airport at 10.50 p.m., it still said the departures board still said that the flight was on time at 5.40 p.m. <laughs> so we, we really were sitting there just hoping a plane would, would come because we had no idea. In fact, when we looked at the Calgary YYC uh, website to, uh, to see if the flight had left Calgary to come to Vegas, um, the Calgary website said that it had been canceled. So we were really, we had no idea what was happening, if we were even flying, if we were even supposed to stay at the airport. We had no idea. Um, 
When the plane finally arrived, it was a shock to all of us because nobody knew that there was even a plane coming. Um, and WestJet people showed up all of a sudden and they, they got us loaded onto the plane, which was fine. Um, they did, uh, they did get us to Calgary. Eventually we got in at 3 AM and, um, but we had no, we had no, nobody from WestJet there to meet us when we arrived to let us know what was going on. Nobody to nothing, just nothing, no communication whatsoever from WestJet. Um, so when we got to the Calgary airport, saw there was nobody there, we just went and grabbed a, a hotel. And when we were leaving the airport, our WestJet apps finally updated and said we were booked on an eight, uh, no, sorry, we were booked on a 3.15 flight the next afternoon. So we thought, well, let's get to the airport around 11. That should give us lots of time. Uh, boy, were we wrong. We got to the airport at 11 and we proceeded to stand in line for five hours because our boarding passes would not work at the uh, automated um, check-in kiosks. And uh, so we stood in line for five hours with two flights taking off while we were like two flights to Kelowna um, taking off while we were in line, missing both of them. And, uh, and a third flight that uh, was delayed and could have flown and was was departing at 420 when we got to the to the check-in counter at 415 and the uh the WestJet agent called the gate they would not hold the flight for us to get there so we uh we ended up going home to an airport hotel <laughs> because we could not fly out that day we had to fly out the next morning at eight so we returned although because we stood for all day long and never actually did anything you know i when i went to bed that night i could not fall asleep because i had not hadn't done anything so i wasn't tired i slept for two hours before we got up again because we wanted to get to the airport as early as humanly possible and we got there and our checking kiosk wouldn't work again. So we stood in line again. Um, luckily we got there early enough that um, we were able to get through the line relatively quickly, an hour and 20 minutes. And, uh, and we were able to get checked in and everything and we got through security we got to the gate and they started loading us and we got on the plane we took off we flew to Kelowna and as we were coming into land they aborted the landing because of weather and sent us back to Calgary <laughs>
And then when we got back to Calgary, we had to leave security, go get our luggage, get back in line, go through the whole process all over again. Got a flight for 4.15 in the afternoon. Now, keep in mind, we've been at the airport since 4.45 a.m. And we've already flown to Kelowna once. And so we sat, we, we did really, really slow laps of the uh, terminal, um, trying to, you know, do something. <laughs> and um, 4.45 comes and we're not loaded on a plane because the plane's not there. Uh, we finally, our, our flight gets delayed three times. We finally get on the flight at, or the plane and take off at 6.15. Oh, I should mention in the morning when we got on the plane uh, at uh, eight, I think we got on the plane at eight o'clock. Um, we proceeded to uh, the de-icing area and it took an hour and a half to wait for the de-icing or our turn at de-icing. Okay, now at 6.15 in the evening, we, uh, they get us loaded up and we just sit there. And the pilot comes on the, on the uh, PA and says, uh, um, we're all ready to go, but we have to wait for the ground crew to come back and close the door on the plane. So we wait 20 minutes and the crew finally gets there. They close the door on the plane and we continue to sit there. And the pilot comes back on the PA and says, we have to wait for uh, hospitality to bring our drinks and snacks because the plane is, doesn't have any left. And I like I said to a flight attendant, we don't need any. It's a 45 minute flight. Like, let's just go. Right. But I guess according to air travel laws in our country, a plane has to have snacks and drinks on board. <laughs> so we proceeded to wait an hour and a half for hospitality to bring the drinks and snacks. And then they, they get them all loaded up and the pilot says, we've got everything. We're just waiting for our turn at de-icing. And the Calgary airport has shut down one of the de-icing bays because they don't have enough staff. And the other de-icing bay needs to be plowed. So we waited, we waited another 45 minutes for the plow to plow the snow out of the uh, second de-icing bay. And luckily we were first in line at de-icing. So after that 45 minutes, we taxied over to de-icing took 15 minutes for them to de-ice us, and then we take off. And as we're coming into Kelowna, 
we're experiencing high winds and landing is not going very smoothly and everybody is worried that we're going to get turned around <laughs> but our pilot made a valiant effort and got us landed it and then it it was this was one of the worst experiences i've ever had flying with an airline and the the airline that we used to say was the best airline in Canada. I can honestly tell you that WestJet is not the best airline in Canada anymore. Uh, we had zero communication from them at any time. The it, it was we one to at one point when we were standing in line for five hours in the Calgary airport. WestJet management came along with a basket of goodies and drinks. And we thought, oh, good, they're bringing us snacks and drinks because we've been standing here for so long. At that point, we've been standing in line for about three hours. And they brought the snacks and drinks over for the agents and completely bypassed the guests that were standing in line and yeah i get it the, the the agents had a tough job that day but they get breaks we don't we had to stand in line for five hours without going to get drinks without going to get food without going to the bathroom because a lot of people were traveling by themselves they couldn't just leave the line it 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 was such a tone-deaf move by WestJet, like the WestJet has become too big. They they are no longer that that spunky little company that's disrupting the Canadian airline industry. They are no better than Air Canada anymore. So it it, it was so bad that when I got back here, when I got back home, I said to my wife, I said because we're supposed to be going to Hawaii with WestJet in December. And I, I said to my wife, I don't think I even want to go to Hawaii now. Because this experience with WestJet was horrendous. So, yeah, it was brutal. <laughs> WestJet employees, whenever we asked them, uh, if we could find one, they tried to blame things on the weather, um, not on the computer outage, but on the weather, um, because, you know, the, the only time that the airline does not have to compensate their passengers for their missed flights is when it is weather related. So this is going to cost WestJet millions of dollars. Um, I know that based on the rules, I am entitled to a thousand dollars. So is everybody that was with me. Oh. Um, it's uh, and I believe they have to come for the uh, the two hotel rooms, the cab rides, all of that stuff. So this is going to cost them a lot of money, and um, and I don't feel bad for them because that was that was a horrible horrible experience no kidding so 
honestly, if, if you'd been, you know, up for the idea, it would have been cheaper for them just to rent you guys cars to drive home and you'd have been home a lot faster. Yeah, except that there was a snowstorm <laughs> oh, okay. in, in BC and uh, the highways were, were, uh, were not good. So we contemplated doing that, but, uh, but when we saw what the condition of the highways was, where we were, we, we thought, well, we could, we could just easily get stuck on the highway. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, this is the, the only weather related issues were on the Monday, which was day three of trying to get home. Um, and, uh, be, but before that, there were no wet weather issues. This was all computer problems. This was all uh, caused by the computers going down. And like I said, this affected Sunwing as well. I have I had friends who got stuck in the Cancun airport for two days. Um, it it was uh, yeah, this was pretty widespread, and it was all it was all WestJet's fault. Ah man, well. Glad you finally made it home anyway. So uh yeah. So sorry for the long-winded story, but but uh but you gotta understand that's why we didn't do a show last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've got a bit of a longer one for you today, Canada, as a result. So uh on the show today, a fiscal update, Churchill, Manitoba, COP27, interest rates going up public order emergency testimony, and more. Where do you want to start, sir? Well, let's just start right at the top. Okay, so Krista Freeland came out with her fiscal update uh, about a week and a half ago now. It would have been the 3rd of November, I guess it was, so 10 days ago. And there actually is some decent stuff in there. And we'll go through some of that, and then we'll go through what's actually making the news out of it. Now. She made a lot of hype about doubling the GST credit, which is an extra 40 bucks a month, roughly, for the low to modest income Canadians. The $500 a month uh, rental supplement is, boy, we want to talk about a narrow window of people who qualify. So it is for renters earning below $35,000 for families, that's a year, or, or below $20,000 for singles, who pay at least 30% of their income for rent. And I thought, okay, so not only are you hitting basically the poorest of the poor to even qualify for this supplement, we all know exactly what is going to happen as soon as a, a $500 supplement is announced, rents are gonna go up by, well, $500 a month. So I don't know how much that's going to help. Well, so, all right, let me get this straight. So $35,000 a year is household income? Yep. Or $20,000 for a single. I mean, nobody makes that. Exactly. No, I mean, well, I, 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 I mean, literally no one in Canada makes that. Like that's what, what do we, uh, once again, this is the liberals creating a program to make it look like they're doing something without actually doing something because nobody in Canada makes that nobody like mi a minimum wage, full-time job. 
like minimum wage is 35 grand a year. Well, well, there you go. So you either, if you're making 20 grand a year, then you have a part-time job and that's all you have in a country that is screaming for workers. So that is virtually impossible in this country to be only making 20 grand a year. So yeah, congratulations on a program that isn't a program. Yeah, no kidding. Well, here's a, and here's more of it. And this one I actually don't have a problem with. I don't know how they're going to manage this, but the uh, update says they want to take profits from house flipping. So if a person purchases a house and lives in it for less than 12 months and then flips it, they want to tax the profits. Well, I don't know exactly how they're going to figure that out, to be honest. If you buy a house and you invest, say, $9,000 in fixing up the bathroom in the kitchen or whatever, and then turn around and sell it, do they include that 9000 you invested or do they just say, oh, you bought it for 100000 and you sold it for 250 Like, I, I really don't know what the, what the criteria is for that. But of course, they were vague on details. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it'll be. It, they won't take into account how much you spent on the reno. They won't take into account, uh, you know, how much you paid in property taxes and in interest and all of that. They also won't take into account if this has nothing to do with house flipping, if this has everything to do with plans change. Um, that happened to us uh when before we moved to bc we were living in calgary and we had just finished building a brand new house and we were in it for no more than six months when we made the decision to move to bc so and we did sell the house for a substantial profit in that time uh like we finally sold the house and it was around 10 months uh, because uh, it took a couple of months to sell it. Um, but we sold it for like 150 grand more than we paid for it in, in like 10 months. And, but this had everything to do with us just moving to a different province and we would have gotten nailed for for tax on that. And I mean, this, this is what we talked about when, when they, when they started uh, demanding that you report whether or not you sold your house on your income tax return, even though you weren't being taxed on it. We like, I was saying when that happened, I said, you know, that this was coming, that they were going to start taxing the sale of your house. Uh, because there's no other reason to be reporting that on your tax return. Um, and I believe we blasted the government on this show when that, when they started requiring that and, um, and lo and behold, that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. Well, and the fact that it's now been revealed that the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has paid generation squeeze at uh, University of British Columbia 
twice now, 250 grand a pop to study this idea of taxing the sale of our homes tells me that uh, that's still on the table. And I've actually called my MP and said that, you know, that whole reporting the sale of your home needs to go. And uh, big surprise, my MP never did call back. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a, what a great gig that is, eh? Having a think tank that gets paid a couple of times for just to regurgitate the same report that they that you gave them the first time. Exactly. You, I mean, that's unbelievable. And I mean, what is it? What is it with governments and paying? people who already believe in the uh, outcome you want to achieve to write a report. <clears throat> like, wouldn't that, shouldn't you be uh, using a group that holds no opinion on what it is you want to do? And they, they do a study and a report to see what the pros and cons are instead of hiring a group that already that already advocates for that to uh, well, to write the report. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's like hiring a pollster and saying, "Okay, I want Tony in Saskatchewan to, to be uh, seen as the best hope for prime minister." And a polling company says, oh, "Okay, well then we'll poll people and say, do you want Tony as prime minister, or would you rather have, you know, Saddam Hussein?" Hitler. <laughs> So then, oh, wow, look, everybody loves you. Yeah, well, the, the polls can't be wrong, can they? So. <laughs> no, exactly. And I mean, that's you know, like it, these these studies with predetermined outcomes are such political garbage, you know, like. And I don't understand why anybody in their right mind would ever support taxing the sale of your house. I mean, how do you determine what the profit is? I mean, I have spent X amount on property tax. I've spent X amount on my uh, utility bills to keep the place running. I have spent X amount on maintenance and repairs. I have spent X amount on, you know, paint and stuff like that. Uh, I've spent, you know, X amount on improving things um, while living here. Um, no, I mean like the the in just the interest on the mortgage alone. I, I've spent a ton of money, right? So how do they determine? Oh, and what about inflation? And with the crazy we're experiencing right now, I mean, how how do you determine that? Like if you've owned like, like, because let's be real, this isn't going to stay at one year. This is going to get expanded out to, you know, a hundred years. So, so that it doesn't matter how long you live, you're going to have to pay tax on the sale of your house. So if you own, have owned your house for 20 years or 25 years, let's, let's say 25 years and you're retiring and you want to move to a condo and you sell your house and the and they say well you bought it for $100,000 25 years ago and you sold it today for 1.3 million 
So you have to pay us tax on $1.2 million. Well, 25 years ago, that hundred grand was like the equivalent of like $700,000 today. Um, and then what about the $300,000 you paid in interest? What about the, you know, all the maintenance costs, all of this, the renovation you did at year 12, and then again at year 20, and then you have this and that and this and that. Well, I mean, who the hell keeps all the receipts from renos that they did 20 years ago, right? Like this is going to screw Canadians over, period. That's what this is designed to do. It's, and it's designed to stop people from moving all over the country. Like this is, I think this is the government, this is, this is going to be used as a way to control the movements of the people in Canada. Um, the same way that, uh, you know, a social credit score and a digital currency would, would prevent people from, you know, having free movement in the country. Uh, these are all just, you know, ways to control people. And I mean, and don't think that that's not possible because they're already doing it in China. And as soon as you get a digital currency that you can just shut off and you can say, well, you know, Lewis and BC, um, we don't like what you said on your last episode. So we're going to stop you from being able to spend your money outside city limits of where you live. And if you don't think that's possible, China's already doing that. China does it on a regular basis with millions and millions and millions of their citizens. They already make it impossible for them to spend money outside of their city limits so they can't travel just because they don't agree with things that they say on social media. This is something that happens right now in 2022 on this planet. So don't think it won't happen here. Yep. No, that's right. All right, so there's one more thing of the fiscal update that I'll bring up before we talk about Christopher Freeland again. And classic liberal say something that sounds good, but doing absolutely nothing. Small business credit card transaction fees. Now, this is something that hits you personally. The liberal government has decided, rather than us regulating the credit card companies to ease up on the the transaction fees, we have said, industry, you'll have to figure this out or else we will regulate you. So why the hell even announce it? Yeah. Um, isn't this part of the same thing where they say that we'll be able, that, that businesses will be able to um, charge extra? Charge extra for using credit cards? Yep. That's part of the same one. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, as a small business owner, I'm, I'm not totally opposed to that. I mean, credit card fees are, are, are take a big chunk out of, out of your sale. Um, 
it's yeah this is a complicated one this is a really complicated one and the and the government really needs to stay out of it um because they're just going to mess things up i mean they they, they they don't there's there's absolutely nothing that the government has ever touched that they haven't messed up so this is something they just need to stay out of because let the small business figure it out because this is where free market comes into play if you don't like that that uh uh, you know, Billy Bob is charging the credit card fees to you on your transaction, and Susie Q is not charging the credit card fees, then the market will shift to Susie Q. And maybe Billy Bob will then go okay maybe we shouldn't do this and take the credit card charges off and not pass them on to the customer so i mean this is this is where free market play um this is something that you got to let the market decide you can't be you can't be um yeah the government's got to stay out of this i mean i don't i don't accept credit cards for the simple reason that the credit card company does take a big chunk of the sale of my of the money um so i don't even accept credit cards at my business and uh that does not um it doesn't affect my business at all people don't care that i don't take credit cards uh so this is not something that even affects me um but uh but yeah, it's this is a this is a tough one. But I mean, the, the the thing is, is that the government just needs to stay out of it. Period. All right. Well, and good that they are. But uh, unfortunately, Christopher Freeland, being Christopher Freeland, as arrogant as she is, decided that she wanted to pretend that she was actually in touch with regular Canadians, and she made this. She was so proud of herself when she announced, "Well, to save money in our household." we decided to get rid of our Disney Plus subscription. And she had such a big smile when she was announcing it too. I thought she actually believes that she's uh, giving some good motherly advice to that family who's, well, skipping meals every week because they can't afford food. But we're saving $13.99 on our Disney Plus subscription. I just had to give a slow golf clap for Christopher Freeland. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is this is this is right up there with some of Trudeau's, uh, you know, paper box water bottle thingy comments. Like this is <laughs> this is wow. Like when she did that, I was, I think I was in Vegas when she did that, and uh, and I was just you know going through my my news feed on my phone. And I saw this and I'm like, oh my God, did she really just say that? And she did. It was real. I thought it was like a, like a, uh, a, a Beaverton article or something. Right. And, and, uh, but no, she actually said that. And I watched the video of her apology or let's, it wasn't even an apology. It was a justification for her comments 
And the way she went on and on and on about her privilege. <laughs> she goes, she talks about how she she comes from privilege and that her household is privileged and and all of this and and uh, and and she understands that that you know canceling Disney Plus isn't going to make their more your mortgage more affordable and stuff like this and it's like all she did the whole time was make me think I think you get paid too much yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh my God what yeah. what a joke oh i mean i can't believe she said that and and then her apology that was not an apology was it kind of made things even worse oh exactly yeah so she did herself no favors whatsoever but uh andrew lawton had a really good time with it on his next show he was saying well maybe the new currency standard should be Disney Plus memberships. And you know, Christopher Freeland makes approximately 80,000 digital Disney Plus memberships per year. <laughs> he went on, it was, it was, it was actually really good. Oh my God, that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> All right. So let's move on from what is a joke to what is no joke. And that is that interest rates have gone up well from 0.25% at the beginning of the year. Now we're at 3.5%. Good for savers the very few that there are, but yeah, those people on variable rate mortgages, that has got to be painful. Yeah, and um, I'm kind of surprised that there were still any variable rate mortgages out there um, because when when my wife and I uh, renewed our mortgage, um, when was that? 2020. In 2020, when my wife and I like we renewed our mortgage um, for the next five years, uh, we locked in for five at a fixed rate because interest rates were as low as they could possibly go. Um, there was nowhere for interest rates to go except up. And so we, we locked in at a fixed rate of 1.74. Um, and sure enough, because of everything that's gone on the last two years, interest rates have, have gone up substantially and all the people who had, you know, uh, variable rate mortgages, they, they've got like mortgage payments that have increased by like a thousand bucks a month. Like, I don't even know where you find that. Like. How do you even find a thousand dollars a month? I mean, it, it's nuts. It, it, it's just nuts. And I mean, here's the thing: why do we have this mortgage structure like this? These why why do we have to renegotiate our interest rate every five years? Um, when we borrowed the money to pay for the house interest rates were at X. So why aren't we paying X for the whole 25 years? Why do we renegotiate every five years? I mean, in the States, they that's what they do. When they take a mortgage, it's the same rate for all 25 years. 
they don't do this renegotiating thing every five years. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, you can renegotiate if you want in the States, but you have to pay a penalty, but you can. So if interest rates drop a lot, you can renegotiate. You have to pay a penalty for, for, for renegotiating, but you can, it can save you a lot of money. Um, but yeah, I don't understand this. I don't understand why we do it this way. I mean, and I don't understand why people still had variable rate mortgages. When we were at rock bottom for interest rates, people should have been locking in at that point. They should have been locking in at fixed rates at that point. Um, I'm not gonna, you know, victim blame, air quotes, um, but come on guys, <laughs> like, come on. But, but yeah, this is, it, I don't know how people find an extra grand a month. I don't know how you find an extra thousand dollars a month to pay your mortgage. Like it, we're gonna have, we're gonna have a, like an epidemic of mortgage foreclosures in this country. And I think it's, I, and I think if you look, the foreclosure rates have already started climbing. Well, they have. And then uh, it was, I believe it was on the Roy Green show where he mentioned that we're over 58% or well over half of Canadians anyway, I can't remember the exact percentage, uh, couldn't afford a $1,000 emergency expense, like a you know car repair, et cetera. So you're right. I mean, for those to have a variable rate mortgage, now the you know the bank will be asking you for more payments. How how are they going to do it when they you know well they could be just said in the last segment when the families are skipping meals just to to stay afloat with the grocery bills? Like it's it's absolutely obscene. Yeah, it is. Um, and and don't and don't buy into the government's BS that this is all because of Russia. <laughs> This has nothing to do with Russia. This has everything to do with the government printing more money than the country has ever seen in two years and doubling our national debt in two years. Um, that's, what, that's what this is. That's all this is. And, and for anybody, and they'll try and, you know, gaslight us and say that the, uh, that this is worldwide and that it would, that no matter what we would have been facing inflation. Yeah, to a degree, but if we had not doubled our national debt, if we had not printed, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in two years, the value of the Canadian dollar would be a lot higher. Like we would likely have a dollar worth more than the American dollar because the American dollar has lost value, a lot of value uh, in, the, in this year alone. And that's what inflation is. Inflation is, is the devaluing of a currency. And so yeah, there would have been some inflation just because goods that we buy from other countries would have gone up in price. But there would have been the same amount of Canadian dollars in the marketplace. And 
those Canadian dollars would be more valuable because there's, I mean, well, not more valuable. Let's say they would be more valuable against other currencies that that printed hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars. Um, it is it is not because of Russia. It is not because of COVID. It's because of government actions over the and government, you know, decisions and and programs and spending programs and everything over the last two and a half years. That's all this comes down to. It comes down to nothing else. Yeah. Well, and even Mark Carney, the uh, you know, former Bank of Canada head, uh, you know outright admitted this is a domestic problem when it was like well that's what we've been saying all along so uh thank you for coming to the party and even tiff macklem now who's been well he's just been way off base through this whole thing he tried to say it was oh it's transitory and then oh no we're not gonna it's not gonna get out of control and well now it's out of control now finally even tiff macklem our current bank of canada governor is saying, oh, yeah, this is a problem. And well, uh, you know, we got to get this under control and we should have been more on the ball. And he's finally actually saying what Pierre Polyev said, is that, uh, yeah, they didn't do their job in controlling inflation. Yeah. I mean, the, the media lambasted Pierre Polyev for saying that. But Pierre Polyev is right. I mean... The Bank of Canada should not have just been doing the government's bidding for it for the past two and a half years. The government of, or the Bank of Canada has a responsibility to the people of Canada to make sure that inflation does not get out of control, that the government doesn't get out of control spending wise. That's its job. That's its only job. And they didn't do it. They just did the government's bidding. They're like, oh, you want to print money? How much do you want? Yeah. And and we'll just print that much or more. <laughs> hey, why not more? <laughs> like they just they just printed as much money as the government asked for. They never said no. And the gut and the, the Bank of Canada is not there to do the government's bidding. The government, the Bank of Canada is there to say no. If we do that inflation is going to go out of control. And we're not going to do that because we have a responsibility to the people of Canada to make sure inflation does not get out of control. And they failed. They failed at their job, their one and only job. So yes, the governor of the Bank of Canada deserves to be fired, period. Yep, he does. And uh, Unfortunately, he's just going to keep increasing interest rates until we can get inflation down. So who knows how high they're going to go? Well, and that's the problem, right? Like in, increasing inflation or uh, interest rates right now, um, it's actually not going to help with inflation. <laughs> it hasn't. I mean, all of these, all of these interest rates, all these interest rate increases have not helped with inflation. The inflation rate is still near 8%. I mean, it hasn't changed. It's not going down. And so it's, it's like, I mean, you're, 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 you're forcing Canada into a recession to, in an effort to keep the interest rates low. 
or sorry, to, to keep the inflation rate low. But it's not working and we're still going into recession. So we're, we're going into a, what they call stagflation where the economy just stagnates or, or, or recedes, but inflation remains high. And that's the worst case scenario. And that's what we're heading towards. Yep, we sure are. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, New Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. And yes, well, let's do. The new MLA for Brooks Medicine Hat, Danielle Smith. So she, once the legislature resumes, she will have a seat representing Brooks Medicine Hat. And if, depending on which media outlets you, listen, you uh, listen to, she either had a decisive victory or she barely squeaked it out. But when we have a system like ours where it's first past the post and you win by plurality, 54% ain't that bad. Uh, 54% is pretty much un-Canadian, except in conservative writings on the prairies. Yeah. I mean, 54% is pretty damn good. I don't know. I don't know if there is even a single liberal MP that has over 50% of the vote in their writing. So the fact that she got 54% of the vote in her writing and uh, it, to be the MLA and premier is pretty damn impressive. Yeah, I think so, especially when it's a by-election. So a lot of the voters don't turn out anyway and by-elections tend to favor opposition parties because that's when their dedicated supporters do come out. So yes. I think she did great. So. I think that, yeah, that's really good. Um, and I'm not saying that because I support her. I'm saying that because it's true. Like, like it is, un, it's, it's almost unheard of to get over 50% in Canadian politics because of, because there's multiple parties. Yeah, exactly. So uh, one of her first moves before she actually won the seat, she had penned a letter to Premier Scott Moe, Saskatchewan and Premier Heather Stephenson in Manitoba and said, you know what? People keep talking about the port of Churchill, Manitoba, because it is a deep water port on the Hudson Bay. And Danielle Smith said, hey, you know what? Let's look at, you know, collaborating with First Nations, building an oil pipeline out there, fixing the rest of the, the railway track. And because there is a rail line that goes up to Churchill yeah. and she says, let's get this going and let's build up Churchill as an export facility. Then there was a fellow in the Western Standard who actually spelled it all out. And the cost of shipping by pipeline to Churchill, just because of the distance, would be less than half of what it is to ship oil to the Gulf Coast right now, because we have a combination of rail and pipelines to do it. And... He laid out that, okay, the maintenance of the track would actually be a little more expensive because of the muskeg conditions. But he said, right now, he says, Churchill would be a great idea. And we've, we've got technology now for, for you know, tankers and, you know, slash icebreakers. This could be done. And so Danielle Smith said, yeah, let's, uh, let's check it out. It would be a boon for Manitoba Hydro because they've got a lot of surplus uh, hydroelectricity from Gillum and other plants up in the north. So uh, to me, I'm saying, yes, let's do it. And apparently there is a company in Calgary that has actually developed a technology to solidify bitumen 
and turn into kind of like almost like a little puck and they're buoyant their specific gravity is less than one so if there was any kind of an accident on the water these things would float so now we've got a way to ship bitumen as a solid and if we get a pipeline up there we can ship oil obviously as in its own form and well we don't have to worry about you know an energy east quebec veto we just have to worry about getting the damn thing built that's very interesting um i didn't know that about the uh about the company in calgary that has developed that technology that is fascinating isn't it yeah i just i, I didn't know until i read that i thought that's great yeah that is really really interesting um and you know you know what this shows is that danielle smith is looking for ways to succeed um she's looking for ways to get stuff done and that is something that you don't see from any other premier in this country right now you don't see that from the federal government. Um, you've got a, a provincial leader who is saying, you know what? F the federal government. Let's figure this out on our own. And they're figuring it out on their own. And unless the federal government steps in and stops this from happening, I mean, this is fantastic. I mean, finally. Finally, a premier who's thinking outside the box here and actually going ahead and trying to do it. That's what we need. We need more of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Scott Moe said he's, he's on board with it. Heather Stephenson was a little cooler to the idea because she says she has other priorities. She wasn't against the idea, though. And uh, honestly, I think that's something that needs to be looked at. I mean, obviously... With Bill C-48, there's a tanker ban for Canadian tankers only on our West Coast. So Churchill, to me, looks better and better. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can't go West because stupid BC won't let it happen. So you've only got one option, and that's go East. And, uh, and you can't go through Quebec. So that's a great, that's a great idea. It is the only the the one problem with that is the feds obviously can still get involved because that pipeline would cross provincial borders. I think they could get around that if all premiers agreed. I don't know that, um, but I do know because the federal government constitutionally controls international trade and commerce. I'm kind of curious how how that would all play out once we get into into the international waters. I guess, but. But I, I think this idea is long overdue to, to be exploring. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm interested to see how they'll keep the waterway clear of ice in the winter. Um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, icebreakers are great, but they, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, that would be an expensive proposition, keeping it, the, 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 the ice broken all, all winter long. But but I, damn, if it's possible, do it. Yeah, exactly. You betcha. So now let's because, go to the flip side. Because, of, oh. because let's be real. I mean, uh, we've, got, we've got a gas and diesel price 
problem in this country right now. And so, I mean, we need, we need a solution. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, uh, well, actually that's a good segue into, uh, cop out 27. I mean, cop 27. They, uh, they of course decided that they hate the oil, oil and gas industry, probably at their very first, uh, cop convention. Canada has quote, a large delegation at cop 27, but they won't tell us how many people they won't tell us which overly expensive Egyptian hotel they are staying at in this very expensive Egyptian resort community. But what we have heard is that the COP27 delegations, well, all of them that are there, have decided that, quote, the global north should be paying climate reparations to the global south to uh, help mitigate climate-related damages. And I thought your head's probably going to explode. Yeah, this is something that we've been warning about. I mean, you can go back and listen to our show back at the beginning. This is stuff that we warned about back then. I mean, we, we've been saying right from the beginning that this, that, that climate change is nothing more than a, a, a wealth transfer program that all this is going to do is become a program to take money from the rich countries and send it to the poor countries. That's all this is about. And the only way that you can get your citizens to agree to a wealth transfer program of this magnitude is to scare the hell out of them and make them think that if we do this, it's going to solve the problems. And so that's what they did. They're scaring the whole world with this climate change stuff. And, and, uh, and, and it's easy to get people to agree to send, you know, billions or trillions of dollars from our taxpayer pockets to, you know, third world dictators. And that's all this is. That's all this has been about since the beginning. Yep. Well, I mean, and that's part of it. I mean, and of course, they want fossil fuel companies to to pay as well. And it has it's a wealth transfer. It's global socialism is what it is. And what makes me actually encouraged about it is they're not even hiding it anymore. They don't care that we know that it's global socialism they're pushing. They don't care that we figured it out that they want to bring down the income of quote wealthier countries so that we can all be equally poor around the world they don't care that we know anymore they they're not hiding their agenda because they somehow think that we're just going to fall in line and comply with it and i think people are eventually in the wealthier countries going to say you know what screw you we're uh, we're sick of feeling guilty for being prosperous i know i am yeah no i i am too i i I mean, I've never felt guilty about it in the first place, but right. I'm sick. I'm sick of this guilt trip that they that they they lay on us. I mean, it's like, I mean, we should be we should feel guilty because our country is doing well that we were born on the right patch of dirt. Sorry, I don't feel guilty about that. We should feel guilty for being white. Um, sorry, I don't feel guilty for that either. 
Um, I had no choice in the matter. I am white, period. I should feel guilty for being a man. Um, nope, I'm sorry, I don't. Uh, I should, there's all these things that we should be feeling guilty about. And I don't feel guilty about any of them because I didn't have a choice in any of them. So why would I feel guilty about it? I mean, this is such BS. I'm getting so sick and tired of these guilt trips that they try and lay on us for every little thing. And it's just enough already. Enough already. Like, uh, I don't even know what to say anymore. Yeah, no, I think you've uh, you've said it well. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that they continue to push us, but I'm glad they're getting more and more radical, and I'm glad they finally come out and just admitted that it's a wealth transfer scam. And I hope that that actually opened some eyes for people in the, quote, global north that, you know what, it's time to stop listening to this BS. I personally have had, long ago, had enough of a bunch of, wealthy idiots jetting around the world in private jets, setting up, you know, in, when the, in the case of the Saudi Arabia conference, setting up tents with air conditioning in the middle of the desert to tell us we got to stop polluting. Go to hell, all of you. Yeah, or that we have to stop using air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, so, this, is, this, is, this is so stupid. I'm so sick and tired of this. I mean, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing that we are going to be able to do to fix, and I use air quotes when I say that, to fix climate change. I mean, there, there, is, there are um, scientists now come, finally coming out and saying things like, you know, yes, if you look at uh, if you look at things on the micro level, look at history on the micro level. Uh, yes, you can say that you know you can make it. You can make what is happening today look bad. But if you look at things on the macro level, if you look at things like instead of over a hundred years, over a thousand years. There's always been these little spikes and dips and everything in, in the climate. Like what's happening right now is not unprecedented. It has happened before. It has happened many, 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 many. Are we affecting the climate? Obviously, you can't have 8 billion of something on a planet and not affect it in some way. But how much of an effect do we have? And I think that's a lot less than people uh, are trying to claim. Um, and you're seeing more scientists now coming out and saying that. And it's about damn time. But I mean, a lot of these scientists, their their funding depends on them saying that uh, that climate change is destroying our planet. Like, it really does. If they say anything other than that, they lose their funding. Like, yeah, that's, that's not, a really good point. And that's not science. That's not science. In fact, wouldn't it be wonderful 
if we discovered that climate change was not destroying our wouldn't it be wonderful if we discovered that humans are not causing climate change wouldn't it be wonderful if you know and like i said are we affecting it most likely a little bit at least because you can't have eight billion people on a planet and not in some way um but i mean now they're trying to go after methane i mean what co2 i thought co2 was the problem you guys have been saying for 30 years that co2 is the problem now it's not the problem or it's only part of the problem and that methane is the problem well guess what they're coming for your red meat now guys Yep, they're going to be right. they're going to be coming for your red meat if, if because methane is going to be the new cause du jour and they're going to be coming after your beef and your chicken and your pork and they're going to try and force everyone to be vegetarians when growing crops growing vegetable crops is one of the most damaging environmental things you can possibly do, especially monocrops, which is how we farm. I mean, the Amazon rainforest is not being chopped down for wood. It isn't. They pile all those trees in piles and they burn it all. The Amazon rainforest is being cut down for monocrop agriculture. That's why they're cutting it down. They're turning all of it into farmland. It's not for wood to build things with. It, it is to put in monocrop agriculture. It, it is one of the most damaging things we can do to the planet. And that's what they're trying to push us towards. Yeah, good point. So uh, let's move from that and talk a little bit about the public order emergency inquiry, because, boy, have we found out some interesting tidbits over the, the past week. Now, Justin Trudeau, I believe this coming week is going to testify. He's going to be the very last person to testify. And as far as I'm concerned, he doesn't even need to know. He already admitted to Doug Ford that, uh, oh, you know what? We don't really need the Emergencies Act after all. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. He actually said that. He said we don't that the police don't need the emergency act powers. They just need to do their job. That's what and, he said. And his exact quote is they need to do their jobs. They don't need more legal tools or enforcement tools. I can't remember how what he said, but yeah, the quote was they need to do their jobs. And it was what I found funny was that Doug Ford was actually the voice of reason and said, yeah, well, I can't direct the OPP. I can't direct the Ottawa Police Service. And Justin Trudeau seemed to think that, well, you, you can. Any dictator can just tell the police what to do. Uh, yeah, but Mr. Ford isn't quite the dictator you are, Justin. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> it, it, that's true. I mean, but the thing is, is Justin Trudeau actually said something smart and that's the thing that I found most shocking of all. And that was that he said, the police don't need the emergency powers. They just need to do their job. And he was right. It's the first thing that he has said that I actually agree with. That's a good point. He, yeah. Yeah, he was right about that. 
Yeah. But then two days later, <laughs> what changed? <laughs> what changed in two days? Yeah, suddenly he decided, oh, no, we need the Emergencies Act after all. And I had to laugh about this in Canada. I'm going to help clear this up for all of you because I am in the trucking business. Uh, CSIS, or maybe it was the Ottawa police, was saying that there were weapons within the, in the trucks in the Freedom Convoy. And they had weapons in their toolboxes. Do you know what weapons they were talking about, Lewis? Uh, well, since you are in the trucking industry, I'm going to let you tell us what those weapons were. Those weapons were, of all things, tools in a toolbox. And I get it. If you're not in the trucking business, you might see someone has this great big pole. It's about three feet long which they use to tighten down the winches on yeah. straps if they're hauling like flat deck loads. They may have a similar bar to tighten up their chains when they're hauling equipment. And mm -hmm. you know what? There's a lot of big bolts on trucks. So you've got some big wrenches. I've actually got a, got a few wrenches that are well over a foot long. And apparently all of these are considered to be weapons. So now I wonder if those weren't perhaps some of the weapons that the RCMP were referring to when they wanted to break down the, the border blockades in Coots. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they're going to create a registry for them. <laughs> a wrench registry. I can see a, it coming. Yeah. A trucking tool industry, uh, trucking tool registry. Yeah, um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I mean, the media did its best to 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 uh, you know poison the public's view of of these protesters. I mean, they you know they tried to claim that they tried to burn down an apartment building, that there were assaults and rapes and all of these things, and none of that was true. None of it was true, and and the and the Liberal Party. Is still trying to uh, is still using the talking point of uh, trucking convoy people trying to cut down or trying to burn down an apartment building. They they've even tried saying that over the past couple of weeks, and and that was proven false like months and months ago. Um, that the person who tried to do that had nothing to do. They were not affiliated with the trucking, with the trucker convoy. They were an Ottawa citizen <laughs> who uh, who tried to do that. Um, there were no assaults. There were no rapes. There were no incidents involving um, the truckers or other. Uh, uh, protesters. There was there were no incidents, none. The police admitted that there were none. Um, and yet, I still know I know people who still believe that that the truckers were violent. Yeah, and, well, I mean, uh, those those bouncy castles were pretty scary. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh. I mean, I never, never did I support the blockades at the border crossing. I never did. I was always opposed to that. That was hurting um, 
that was hurting fellow Canadians more than uh, than it was getting the government's attention um, because it didn't work. What they did at the border did not work. Um, that was not, and, and it should have been, the police should have moved in a lot sooner and taken those down. Um, Coots, I mean, they, 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 you'll see the media still trying to, you know, still running with the narrative that the, uh, that the RCMP raid that turned up a whole bunch of guns was at the blockade that was at the border, um, which it wasn't. It was actually at a house in Coots, uh, which was, you know, kilometers away from where the uh, from where the border blockade was. It had very little, if nothing, if anything, to do with the blockade. Um, I think it. I think it just happened to be a house of one of the per people that was in. The blockade, but they did. The, but the weapons weren't there. <laughs> they were at a house. They were never at the blockade. Um, like there, there was just this this narrative. And, and I mean, we know. I mean, the media in this country is just so incestuous. I mean, the way that they just um, close ranks and pull together for the Liberal Party every single time. It's just disgusting. Well, it is, and it's interesting to note, by the way, that the border blockades and the Freedom Convoy were not actually affiliated. But, of course, that story is lost in our mainstream media, too, because they want to make certain they paint the Freedom Convoy as negatively as possible. But yes. the testimony throughout this entire inquiry so far has been nothing but damning for the Trudeau government. I mean, we even oh, saw yeah. text messages from Brenda Lucky texting other uh, chiefs of police organizations saying, hey, has Bill Blair hit you up for an endorsement yet? Saying that the Emergencies Act was necessary. And I thought, wow, talk about interference. And yeah, that, that came out the, during these uh, in, inquiries as well. And I just say, how does Brenda Lucky still have a job? Yeah, that's a very good question because uh, something that... Um... Conservative MP Rachel Dancho, she is the uh, shadow minister of safety, I believe. Um, she brought up in the House of Commons that Brenda Lucky has been requesting a messaging app that, uh, that has been requesting permission to install an emergent, or a, a messaging app on her phone to delete the messages after they were sent. Oh, so tell me you have nothing to hide without telling me you have nothing to hide. <laughs> yeah, well, I think actually what you mean is tell me you have something to hide without telling me you have something to hide. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, how, like if that doesn't tell you that she is that she knows she did wrong, but doesn't want to be accountable for it. I mean, if nothing else, that's, that just tells you she's guilty. I mean, that she's guilty of interference. She's guilty of everything. I mean, like she's kind of at the center of a lot of this. <laughs> I mean, there's this, oh, the, yeah. the whole trucker convoy thing. She was, she, she was, uh, um, it, it looks like she was trying to, do her best to help the liberals 
um, she in the uh, in the uh, uh, Nova Scotia shooting inquiry, we're finding out that she was trying to do everything she could to help the liberals. Um, it's she's it's almost like she's a political plant. Well, that's actually a really good way to put it. Yeah. So, uh, well, you mentioned the word plants. So let's uh, let's go to the West Coast and talk about some of the, the herbal plants that are going around Vancouver. You had put me on to uh, a documentary by Aaron Gunn uh, called Vancouver is Dying. And I know that we're a little bit over our usual time, Canada, but this is something we really need to talk about because it's, uh, well, it's not just Vancouver, but Vancouver is in the spotlight. So I'll let you take this one and run, Lewis. Yeah, there's a documentary, and if you don't know who Aaron Gunn is, uh, he is a conservative um, political commentator uh, out here in BC, and he was he tried to run for the BC Liberal leadership, uh, but the BC Liberal Party, and for the rest of the country, BC Liberals, the BC Liberal Party is not a typical liberal party it is a coalition of conservatives and liberals um he he tried to run for the leadership but was uh he was disqualified and was not allowed to run um even against the uh the uh the support of other candidates namely ellis ross um, they, uh, they said he should be allowed to run. Everybody should be allowed to run, but they eliminated him, um, and didn't even really give a good reason. Um, so he's now turned his focus on to doing, um, short videos, uh, like political videos on YouTube, uh, describing problems in BC and actually offering solutions. Um, and one of the things that he's done is he's done a documentary, uh, about the drug and homeless problem in Vancouver, and it is titled Vancouver is dying. It is a eye-opening and very disturbing documentary. Um, it's something I think everybody should watch. Uh, not only do they show... <clears throat> Not only do they show the homeless problem in all its glory, they show the drug problem in all its glory, um, but they also talk about what caused it. And they pinpoint government policies that have actually caused this problem in the first place and how the governments are doing nothing but doubling down on these policies and the problems just keep getting worse. Um, they're not improving, uh, they're, they're getting worse. And it's and, and if and nothing else, it really shows you how governments don't learn from their mistakes. In fact, they're, they're so stubborn in their decisions that they double down on them. And when the, when the problems get worse, the government claims no responsibility. And so the, the documentary is fascinating. It's disturbing. It's um, highly informative, and I really, really recommend everybody watch it. It's on YouTube, and it's called Vancouver is Dying. 
Um, and one of the things that they talked about was how the safe injection site that Vancouver put in, the very first one that they put in, that's when they saw dramatic rise in drug use, in, uh, in overdose deaths, in homelessness. And we've been told in BC that, that this safe injection site program was a great success and that they started opening up more safe injection sites around the lower mainland and across the province. Um, there is nothing successful about this program, except that it's succeeded in making the problems worse. And, um, uh, and now, and I mean, I've talked about it on this show before. I don't know if they still have them, but Vancouver actually had a pilot program of having vending machines dispensing hard drugs in the downtown east side. Um, and now, and now there's a, a man down there in Vancouver that wants to open up a store where people can come and buy cocaine, crack cocaine, meth, uh, among, uh, amongst other hard drugs. Yeah, and he set this up just uh, essentially like a convenience store. And I love how he, the quote in the article I read about it, how he said that, well, of course, they'll be asking for ID, but they'll have to make a judgment call when it comes to the homeless. And I thought, oh, okay, so we're going to ask for ID, but we're not necessarily going to ask for ID. And I'm sure this is, is taking advantage of the BC government's the liberalization as far as the possession rules go. But even that actually gets addressed in the documentary with the former police officer who says, hey, you know what? For those smaller possession people, we never we never charge them anyway. It's uh, yeah. So this convenience store thing, I guess, well, it's a horrible idea. And like you said, everybody should watch this documentary because it's uh, it's a real eye opener. I mean, for someone like me who obviously doesn't live in BC, I'm not really affected by it directly, but you can see you can see the problems in Vancouver in your own cities across Canada, it doesn't matter where you live. So it's uh, it's a tragic, tragic documentary, really. You see the crime, yeah, and, the assaults, it's horrible. Yeah, and I mean, and you, one thing that you just said is that, you know, it might not affect you directly, but yet, it doesn't affect you yet. Like, this is coming to a town near you eventually. I mean, this is, this is like here when when they opened up, uh, I think it's called Horizons or something like that. It's the the safe injection site. I can't remember what it's actually called. Um, they said, "Oh yeah, we're going to have programs in the safe injection site for people who want to get off drugs." Well, you learned watching this documentary that these people don't actually don't want to be off drugs. Like that's, that was the thing that I found fascinating was that everybody that they interviewed 
all the homeless people that they interviewed, they don't want to be off drugs. They, they, they want to do their drugs. And because, I mean, there was that one, uh, there was one woman that he interviewed in there who said that uh, she'd been living on the street for 27 years. And the only reason that she didn't live in one of the government uh, run shelters or, or, uh, or homeless um, housing, right? The housing that they provide, which is generally a hotel that they've bought, like an old, an old motel that they've bought and converted into um, uh, living quarters for homeless people. Um, she said the reason they don't want to live there is because they have rules that they can't do drugs. So they live on the street because they want to do drugs. Like it, it was, it's heartbreaking. Like these people, like there was a, there was another woman that he interviewed who had like maybe one tooth left and she was in her twenties. You remember the one who had boss lady on her? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. I can't remember if it was on her shirt or on her hat, but it said boss lady. And, uh, and she was in so much denial about drug addiction and she had one tooth left and it, it it's just the governments are obviously not dealing with this right um obviously but they're also not willing to admit that they're wrong in how they're dealing with it well, yeah, like the former Mayor Kennedy Stewart does not come out of this one looking good. Because he, uh, I mean, I don't even think Aaron Gunn was picking on him. Aaron Gunn just points out that every time Kennedy Stewart had a chance to do something right, he doubled down on stupid. Yeah. And I mean, and he's not the only one. I mean, uh, the mayor before Kennedy Stewart did, was the same way. Um, and I'm trying to remember, uh, trying to remember his name. He had a, a strange name. Uh, I can't remember, but, um, but yeah, I mean, like they, it's just successive mayors, successive, uh, premiers, um, just governments at all level are failing the, the, the Canadian people and, um, and not just failing, but like they're, because failing would, would mean that they're, that it's inaction. Uh, that they're they're not doing anything to help. That would that that's where what failing would suggest. But so they're not really failing. They're well, they are failing, but they're also perpetrating because they're doing they they're doing things they know don't work, but are popular with public opinion. And as far as I'm concerned, that is perpetrating. That you're you are the problem at that point, and you're you're malicious in it because you're doing it for one reason and one reason only, and that's votes. Um, and it's it's really really sad to see how willing people are how willing humans are 
to inflict pain and suffering on other humans for personal gain. Oh, that, that's actually a really good way to put it. So uh, I think we're going to wrap it there, Canada. So uh, definitely, please, uh, if, you've, if you've got 55 minutes to spare, go to YouTube, watch Vancouver is Dying. It is, uh, it's actually quite an incredible piece of work. So yeah, All right, and, and as we like to do by leaving you on a downer. <laughs> yeah, we got to keep with that tradition. So. <laughs> so thank you for sticking with us. I know this was a longer show than normal, but we had a lot of stuff to kind of built up on the plate for two weeks. So uh, until next week, it is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. Good night. Good night, Canada. and Tony.